Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the program, UFO Warning. In this episode, we're taking a look at UFO encounters in the Lone Star State. That's correct, UFO encounters in the Lone Star State. Now, the article comes from Texas Monthly, written by by Pamela Koloff. We'll just skip through the introduction here because it's not really important. But she starts off with some interesting accounts of some of these some of these UFO encounters. Going clear back to 1878, the first one here in Denison, Texas. It says, thanks to a long-forgotten 19th century farmer named John Martin, unidentified flying objects were first described as saucers here in Texas. According to the article, a strange phenomena that appeared in Denison Daily News on January 25th, 1878, Martin was hunting when he saw a dark object high in the northern sky. The news account states that the peculiar shape and the velocity with which he, with which the object seemed to approach, riveted his attention, and he strained his eyes to discover its character. When first noticed, it appeared to be about the size of an orange. After which, it continued to grow large. So it looks like this first UFO sighting recorded at least, in Texas, back on January 25th, 1878, by this Mr. Martin, was definitely exhibited the qualities of a shapeshifter. It's changing the size. Starts out the size of an orange, then begins to grow larger as it approaches the experiencer. After gazing at it for some time, the article continues, Mr. Martin became blind from looking and left for left of viewing to rest his eyes. On resuming his view... The objects almost overhead had increased considerably in size and appeared to be going through space at a wonderful speed. When directly over him, it was about the size of a large saucer and was evidently at great height. So he's seeing it as the size of a saucer, but imagine how big this thing actually was because he was looking at it from a long distance away. It says, although Martin saw a quote-unquote saucer, Idaho pilot Kenneth Arnold is widely and incorrectly credited as the first person to describe unidentified flying objects as such. Arnold ushered in the post-war wave of UFO history in 1947 when he told a local reporter and in turn the Associated Press that he had seen an object in the sky over Washington's Cascade Mountains that flew like a saucer would if you skipped it across the water. Arnold's account coined the term flying saucer although that honor rightly belongs to Texan John Martin, who had spotted one 69 years earlier. Pretty neat. 1883, Marfa, Texas, it says, According to Apache legend, the ghostly flashes of light that appear in the night sky of West Texas are the incarnation of the wandering spirit of the Apache chief, Alaste, who has haunted the Cincinnati Mountains since his execution at the hands of Mexican rurales in the 1860s. White settlers first noticed these lights, now known as the Marfa Mystery Lights, in 1883, when rancher Robert Ellison was driving his cattle a few miles east of Marfa. He and his companions spotted flickering lights along the horizon 
and feared that they were Apache campfires, but when they searched the area the next day, they found no trace of encampments. So it looked like, you know, these Native American Apaches had been gathered around their their small campfires at night, dotted across the horizon there. But when they went up on the place, no sign of any campfires. It says, since that time, people have flocked to what is now what is now Route 90, nine miles east of Marfa, to try to spot the lights, which have appeared in white, pink, yellow, green, and blue, and blue hues to the east of the Cincinnati Mountains. Sometimes the lights dance erratically, while other times they remain motionless, slowly brightening with the intensity. Skeptics believe the lights are simply car headlights skimming across the mountains. Yeah, because you know, because you can drive a car anywhere, right? But that would not explain sightings in the last century, or in or the fact that the lights often move in circles or zigzag formations. Others have argued that the lights are nothing more than ball lightning, reflections, mirages, swamp gas, or static electricity, but scientists have not been able to prove that any of these phenomena could happen in West Texas terrain with such regularity. According to local folklore, the lights are believed to be many things. Alaska's spirit, the reflections of Spanish gold, the treasures of Pancho Villa, Bruja, meaning witches, who are, who are learning to fly, and most recently, UFOs. Now look, the idea that we could explain something like this away by saying that it's cars, well, of course, this is ridiculous. This, this has been going on for over 100 years, long before cars were on the scene. The idea that you could just say this is happening, reoccurring, and this is just nothing more than, you know, ball lightning or some other, you know, natural phenomena like swamp gas. Well, that's a little silly, too, because apparently there's a lack of swamps down there. And you have to ask yourself, how many of us have, how many of us have ever seen uh, ball lightning even one time? And do you see something like ball lightning with such a regularity? Obviously, there's something going on here. Now, maybe there's something with the geology that's producing these flames or these you know, what appear to be flames, maybe they're just static electricity or whatever. Either something big, regular, like a fault line or whatever that's producing this stuff. I think you have the same thing happen in the Smoky Mountains. Or, and something paranormal. But it's not something silly like swamp gas or, you know, the catch-all, like a ball lightning or car headlights. It's either a pretty big natural phenomenon, and it has to be because it's been going on off and on now for over 100 years, at least, or it's something paranormal along the lines of UFOs. One of those. I think we can rule out. We can rule out the headlights of cars. It goes on. It says 1897, Aurora, Texas. Now this is one I really like. There's a, several different uh, videos about this online. I think the History Channel did a pretty, a pretty decent um, documentary on this several years ago, and it's just a really fun case and it, it's, and a very interesting. Uh, UFO uh, case to, to study. 1897, Aurora, Texas. It says, on April 17, 1897, six years before the first plane was flown by the Wright brothers, an airship, quote-unquote, visited Aurora, Texas. After having been spotted sporadically in the Midwest, the illuminated cigar-shaped craft was next seen in Texas, first in Denton and then in Weatherford. Corsicana and Stephenville. The editor of the Stephenville newspaper claimed that the airship hovered so close to the town that he was able to yell out a request for an interview, which the extraterrestrial pilot denied. These are some odd uh, reports. This, these airship encounters took place all over uh, the Midwest and the western United States for a few years there. 
could be one of those cases where people are seeing UFOs and these UFOs are somehow interfacing with us in a way that would be easiest for us to understand. And of course, at that time, airships, you know, had been around for a little bit. Not they were not they were not a super common thing, but they were something people would have known about. Now, the idea that these things would have just been randomly flying across the country is pretty ridiculous. It would be like a flying car today. Yeah, flying cars exist, but the idea that dozens of people would report different flying cars in their neighborhood with unidentified drivers is pretty highly unlikely. Okay, it says, moving on to Aurora, the airship reportedly circled the town square, crashed into a windmill, and exploded, leaving behind a pilot's charred body and a note written in decipherable hieroglyphics, according to an article published in the Dallas Morning News two days later. The pilot was thought to be a native of the planet Mars. Naturally, they're going to put him on Mars because that's the planet that people, you know, at that time would have done the most about. They would have assumed, well, this is the most habitable planet. It must be where he's from. Rumors about the airship persisted, and in 1973, a team of UFO buffs and television crews descended on Aurora to see if they could substantiate the story. Some Aurora elders claimed to remember the close encounter, while most of the town's 300 residents emphatically insisted that it was an old hoax designed to, re designed to revive Aurora's declining fortunes. The incident may always remain a mystery, however, since a district court blocked an effort to exhume an Aurora grave that some believe held the pilot's body. According to local legend, the grave was marked only by a headstone bearing a cryptid insignia. Several small circles drawn inside the Greek letter Delta. The stone has since disappeared. You know, how convenient. It seems like so oftentimes when we have the smoking gun evidence, first we're blocked by the court system, and then the evidence just disappears. 1948, Laredo, Texas. Gossip circulated through the 1950s that several officers from an Air Force base in Laredo were instructed on July 7, 1948 to cordon off a remote strip of land where an extraterrestrial aircraft had crashed. Rumored to be a large disk, it had supposedly flown from Albuquerque at around 2,000 miles per hour before crashing into the West Texas desert, where it was then recovered by government agents. One variation on the story claimed that the badly burned inhabitants of the craft was significantly shorter in height than the average human and had unusually long arms. In 1978, a man claiming to be a former Air Force photographer sent reporters photos of a severely burned body inside some wreckage, pictures that he claimed he was instructed to take of a wrecked experimental aircraft outside of Laredo during the summer of 1948. The singed alien in the photo, quickly dubbed Tomato Man by the press because of its extremely large head, is probably a human pilot who was killed when his plane crashed and burned. The pilot's noticeable lack of hair and enlarged head are the result to, thought to be of the fire. Oh, that's terrible. Government papers now indicate that the Air Force was experimenting at the time with V-2 rockets nicknamed Foo Fighters, hence the crashed experimental aircraft that the photographer was instructed to document. One resolved question is whether the pilot was actually a man or a monkey. The latter would explain the rumor that the pilot was short in stature with extremely large arms. You know, that sounds like a parallel narrative to me. I mean, saying that this large aircraft had crashed in the desert after traveling at 2,000 miles an hour uh, doesn't really sound 
doesn't sound viable. You know, they throw in the story of, well, maybe the, maybe, hey, maybe the uh, Army or the Air Force tied a monkey onto a VT rocket just for kicks and giggles and decided to send it from Austin to Lubbock to see what would happen. So you kind of see what's happening here. This very, this very uh, kind of a dark story of this UFO traveling at 2,000 miles an hour, crashing in the desert there in Texas, and then this fellow taking a picture of the occupant, clearly at ET, and sharing it. As soon as that story gets out, a parallel narrative is released. Oh, that wasn't a pilot. That would simply have been a monkey that we tied to the V-2 rocket. Boy, they could work a little harder. 1951, Lubbock, Texas. Before Buddy Holly put Lubbock on the map, the Lubbock lights gave this panhandle town national fame. On August, on August night in 1951, several college professors sitting outside on the porch saw a formation of blue lights fly quickly overhead. They waited to see if the lights would return, and later that evening, they observed the lights again. That same night, a Lubbock woman also spotted the blue lights as she was taking her laundry off the clothesline. The lights, she later told the Air Force investigator, framed the tail end of an enormous wing-like craft. So it might not have just been a string of lights. From what she's saying is, was, these were the lights that were attached to an enormous wing-like craft. This is way before the stealth bomber or anything like that. Now, we've gone into this particular sighting in some detail in an earlier podcast. Lubbock Lights, you can check that out. She says, A few days earlier, an employee of the Atomic Energy Commission saw the same type of aircraft in Albuquerque, a wing-shaped object with blue lights at its base. By the end of August, there was another sighting of the object in Matador, Texas, about 70 miles north of Lubbock as well as photographs of the blue lights taken by Texas Tech freshman Carl Hart Jr. Before the lights disappeared two weeks later, dozens of people in North Texas reported seeing blue lights darting from one end of the horizon to the other. An investigation in the phenomena for Project Blue Book, a 1950s and 60s Air Force study into the possible existence of UFOs, I would say cover-up, came up with two explanations for the sightings. One theory was that the lights were... Plovers? West Texas birds with shiny white breasts that could have reflected the city's glow as they flew overhead. Oh my. Another theory was that the lights were actually a result of Lubbock's newly installed mercury vapor street lamps that gave off a bluish haze. However, neither of these explanations accounted for the lights' immense speed or their sudden disappearance. You know, it's so funny. The same kind of nonsense keeps coming up today. And you can just see, it's almost certainly these guys that were here from the government investigating knew that these that this was some sort of unidentified flying object. Now, I'm not saying that they had to know what it was. But when they put out these um, debunking theories that, well, it was the newly installed street lights or it was a flock of birds... This should show uh, how little respect and how much disdain that they have for the population. I don't know if they think that people are just so stupid they'll believe anything. I think sometimes they might be right. Or if, on the other hand, they think people are so desperate to maintain their state of normalcy bias that they will accept any excuse not to make their brain hurt. Because, let's face it, when you look up in the sky and you see a giant spaceship fly over, 
it can make your brain hurt a little bit. That's kind of out of the norm, right? 1957, Loveland, Texas. Not far from where the Lubbock lights were seen six years earlier, residents of Loveland, Texas reported 10 UFO-related incidents during the course of several hours on November 6, 1957. The first close encounter took place around 11 o'clock in the morning when farm worker Pedro Sacido and Joe Salas saw a giant, brilliantly lit object fly over their truck. As it passed overhead, the truck's headlights and engines went dead, resuming to normal once the craft had disappeared. Sacido reported the incident to Leveland Police, who received a call an hour later from Leveland resident Jim Wheeler. Eight miles from the original report, Wheeler said that his engine and headlights had failed as he approached a brightly lit egg-shaped object in the road. Once the craft had ascended into the sky and disappeared, Wheeler was able to restart his engine. So this poor guy's just driving along in his old vehicle, 1957, right? Comes across this egg-shaped object in the middle of the road. You know, we had a sighting, I believe, from the 40s or 50s in Iowa, it's in the southern part of the state, of a guy who reported seeing an egg-shaped UFO land not far from him while he was fishing along the banks of the Skunk River. So crazy. Sheriff Weir Clem and the Deputy Pat McCullough drove along Route 116 searching for the glowing object when finally at 1.30 a.m. they spotted an enormous egg-shaped craft that looked like a brilliant red sunset across the highway, according to Clem. It lit up the whole pavement in front of us for about two seconds, he said, and then it disappeared. Throughout the night, the Loveland Police Department continued to receive calls describing a similar bright object that caused lights to dim and car engines to shut off. This is a mass UFO encounter, not just a sighting, because they're interacting with it. And they're all saying the same thing. Super bright, car shutting down. The Air Force investigating speculating the incident were examples of, you guessed it, ball lightning. However, Dr. Alan Hining, the Air Force primary UFO investigator at the time, recanted his conclusion in later writings. I am not proud today that I hastily occurred, concurred in Captain Gregory's evaluation as ball lightning as an explanation for the Leveland sightings on the basis of information that an electrical storm had been in progress in the Leveland area at the time. There was shown That was shown not to be the case, wrote Heineck. Perhaps, besides I, besides absence of any evidence that ball lightning can, can stop cars and put out headlights, the Leveland sightings remain unexplained. Well, how hard is it just to say that the first time around? Okay, we'll do a couple more here, maybe. 1975, Seguin, Texas. It says the world's largest organization, the mutual, the world's largest UFO organization, the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, was originally funded in Illinois in 1969 after the Air Force abruptly ended Project Blue Book. Its study of the possible existence of UFOs continuing where Project Blue Book left off, MUFON went about researching, investigating, and, compel and compiling reports of UFO sightings in an attempt to resolve the question of whether or not UFOs exist. In 1975, MUFON relocated to Seguin, where it resumed documenting UFO sightings, alien abductions, crop circles, and animal mutilations throughout the world by, the, by using the organization's vast network of investigators. Of course, we know they're still doing that today with with uh, online reporting and all that, I, I really wish that, that uh, Congress would just order the Defense Department to turn over those sightings to MUFON and let them sort through it. 
would do a much better job, I think. Now considered to be the preeminent UFO authority, MUFON hosts an international symposium each year, publishes its own magazine, and 312-page investigator's manual. Yeah, they do a lot of good work. Let's finish up with this last case, and then we'll, we'll call it into this podcast. 1980, Dayton, Texas. On the night of December 29, 1980, on a remote road 400 miles outside Houston, restaurant owner, restaurant owner Betty Cash, her friend Vicki Landrum, and Landrum's seven-year-old grandson Colby were returning home after a night out when a large glowing diamond-shaped aircraft spurting flames descended from the sky and hovered above the roadway in front of them. When they got out of the car to take a closer look at the object, which made a loud roaring noise, they were soon forced to return to the car because of the intense heat emanating from the craft. Cash claimed that she w- that she grasped her car's hot door handle. Her wedding ring burned into her hand. Soon after, the mysterious aircraft flew away with a swarm of black Chinooks or military helicopters. Now, this is one of these cases where people were actually injured from coming in contact with these things. And it looks like the government was already on the scene when these guys got here, when, when, when the uh, experiencers happened to show up. And we've done a podcast on this before, but we'll go on here. It says, Cash, who had remained outside the car longer than Landrum's, was admitted to a hospital as a burn victim. All three passengers manifested different symptoms of what appeared to be radiation sickness, such as burns, blisters, nausea, rashes, severe headaches, sore eyes, and hair and fingernail loss. Cash was later diagnosed with breast cancer, and Landrum developed severe cataracts. I've never believed in UFOs, Cash later told reporters. I was the first one to laugh, but she added, I was terrified. Now I'm afraid to look up. Two theories swirled around the incident. Either the object was an experimental military device which had gone haywire on a test flight, or some speculated it was a recovered alien aircraft which the Air Force was trying to fly. Cash and Landrum hired a lawyer who filed suit against the government for 20 million damages. The case dragged on in district court for several years and called upon the testimony of officials from NASA, the Air Force, the Army, and Navy before being dismissed in 1986 because no government governmental agency owned or operated any aircraft fitting cash and land of description. To this day, there is no conclusive explanation of that night's events. Well, the only the only conclusion you have is these people got real sick, just like just like the government employees that were sent out there to that study in Stanford, what, 150 or so of them had injuries from coming in contact with UFOs. 25% of them, they said, eventually died. So something's happening here. They're not dying from ball lightning. They're not dying from swamp gas. They're not dying because they had a hallucination. They came in contact with something the same way these folks down in Texas did. All of these experiences happened. All were recorded. Many of these are mass sightings, if not all of them. And I just think it's it's so interesting to read through these and see the commonalities between each each experience that each one of these observers had, ranging from you know just shock and awe to contracting cancer. Basically, it looks like. Until next time, this is UFO warning. Over now.